everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only podcast where you've got a slightly buggy flowchart to help you navigate your way through the episode. I'm your host this evening, Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Mr. Jacob Kloppenstein. Jake, how are you doing tonight? Always wonderful, my friend. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Well, we have an action-packed episode here. Why don't we start it? Because today is a very, very special episode for a year's reason. It is. Happy anniversary to us. It's hard to believe it's been 32 episodes that we've cranked out in year number one. Right. Which, as we said, we will release the podcast whenever we kind of feel like it. And I feel like 32 episodes in a year is about as much as we want to like it. It's not every other week. It's a little bit more than every other week, but not not by much. There's a lot of podcasts that always release on Tuesdays, and supposedly that's important. And like, I've never personally noticed that to matter in any way, shape or form. Right. And we just we, we, we get to it. We can. Sometimes we don't play enough games to have an episode. And sometimes we play so many games that we have to have two. And life happens. You know, this is a hobby for us. So therefore, other things sometimes have to take precedence. Well, why don't we kind of state what our goals are for this podcast and kind of now that we've learned some stuff in the year, kind of redefine who we are. For those of you that have come along in the last year, this all really launched with the goal of being focused at aspirational gamers. We sort of identified that there was a group of people maybe being underserved in the podcast community that were maybe looking to move up to the next level, whether you were a light gamer and moving up to a midweight gamer, a midweight gamer moving up to a heavyweight gamer. We wanted to be for you and sort of suggest the, hey, if you like that, maybe you'll like this. And Sometimes that would mean talking about some really heavy, crazy things. And sometimes that means talking about some honestly pretty common games. Agreed. And I think we've done a good job of that. We just wanted to highlight where we're at in the hobby, where we're not designers, we're not publishers, we're not really in the industry, but we're way beyond playing Azul all night. You know, like there's it's kind of a niche of being really into it, but not there yet and having it be your entire life, if you will. Yeah. And we've made it known that we like heavy games, but. We don't like just heavy games. We're, we are Omnigamers, and we play with a lot of people that frankly don't like heavy games. So it's a matter of, hey, how do we find those games that we love playing and our non-heavy loving game players love playing as well? Absolutely. Well, why don't we say some of our favorite moments for this first year? I'll start with uh, one of my favorite this year. This was our Moguls Con Zero, our first one we ever made in 2019, where we had, um, I think we had about 50 something, something attendees coming to our little convention down in Roseville, which was awesome. Got to play a bunch of fun games with a whole bunch of friends. It was amazing. Yeah, that was great. That uh, worked out better. Being that we set it up on really short notice and launched it kind of on the shoestring, just trying to get something and get off the ground and claim a weekend and claim a time of year. I thought it went great. And, you know, again, big thanks to everybody that hopped an airplane or hopped in their car or whatever else to travel to come visit us for a weekend and play games with us because, wow, it was great. It was so much fun. My my weekend of gaming that is still just if you look at the list of games we played, it was just amazing. And, you know, that's probably a good time to mention that we are currently deep in the plannings for our next MogulsCon 2020. And I think we've got some really great ideas coming up for what's going to happen this year. Should be fun stuff. Hopefully we will give a much longer runway than we did last year. Yeah, for sure. I think our plan right now is that we're going to have an announcement sometime early 2020. You know, does that mean January, February, March? Yeah. Yep. That's what it means. (laughs) Somewhere in there. Somewhere in there, we'll have some final details on where we're going to be and what we're going to do and when it's going to be. I can tell you this, we're looking very, very, very strongly at the September, October timeframe, most likely September. So absolutely keep that in mind for your gaming travel plans. All right. Well, other than Mogul's Con, Mark, what were some of your favorite moments from this past year? 
One of my favorite moments was some of the guests that we had on board this year. Um, we had several special guests over the course of the year. We had uh, Craig Taylor from The Train Rush. We had the one and only Dan Thoreau, also known as Space Biff. And we had Ambi Valdez from Board Game Blitz, who all came on and were guest moguls for the day. And I can promise you that in year number two, we are going to have more guest moguls on because that's a lot of fun. It is really fun for us. And it's kind of fun, too. I feel like people kind of know our takes. I feel it'd be interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong, listeners to hear some uh, kind of different takes and push back against us a little bit. Yeah, and I think regardless, that'll sort of always be our shtick, right? When we have a special guest on, we're not going to do an interview. We're not going to do a la 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 la. You know, the, you're coming on to be a mogul for the day. And I, I think that that's a fun little spin on things. Yes, meeting all those people and having them on our podcast was amazing. It's also fun that, you know, we really, we ramped up from functionally zero one year ago. I mean, we released it not knowing if anybody was going to listen to it. And I love all the friends that we've made over the last year, the, the, the people that we've had a chance to meet and interact with and talk to that I don't know that we would have met otherwise. Yeah, and every single interaction I've had has been so positive and amazing and has opened me up to new games and I'm hoping that I've opened other people's eyes to some games as well. One of the weird offshoots in that one is it always like I always have to do a double take when I see gaming moguls in print someplace, whether it be Twitter or Reddit or on a Slack or something that somebody calls out gaming moguls. I, I always do a double take and I go, wait a minute, that's us. Yeah, <laughs> it was so a cool. very strange day when somebody posted the mogul scale onto Reddit and I was just browsing around. I'm like, that's us. What are you, what's going on? I didn't do that. Yeah, very cool stuff. To commemorate our one year we're actually going to have a little fun with this one, and we are going to have a contest in honor of our one-year anniversary that I think it's one of those things. Isn't there a tradition in some cultures where like, you name the baby after a year when you know whether they're actually going to live or not? I feel like it's one of those things you always hear about like the old Western times when like they didn't have penicillin, yeah. and they'd be like, well, I don't know if this, this child's going to make it to a year, and they'd wait until a year. But yeah, so I feel like we had to do that with our logo, right? We had it made ever since the beginning, and we haven't really changed it besides its background color. We got to give him a name. We don't know how to refer to him. I just call him the little gaming mogul guy, the little Monopoly guy. So to commemorate this, we are going to have a big contest for it. We have a new URL up at our website. If you'd like to enter into it, please go to gamingmoguls.com slash contest. And what we are going to do is you have to submit a name for our little logo. And then at the end of January, we will close down the giveaway URL and then pick a winner. What are they winning, Mark? Some amazing game, I'm sure. This is, you know, we had, to, it's a special contest to name our aristocrat guy. We had to think of something cool and we kind of went back and forth on it. And what would be neat and what would be super duper in brand for the gaming moguls? We are going to give away a copy of Oink's Modern Art, which super duper rare. It's the same modern art game as you can buy here. But it comes in a little tiny oink box with oink graphics. And oh, by the way, it's French or German. <laughs> it's not in English, but super rare in the United States. And in my opinion, maybe one of the most beautiful copies. I've heard the South Korean one is gorgeous also. And I have not seen that, but we're going to acquire one of those for you and ship it to you. And you get a chance to win that one if you successfully name our aristocrat guy. We will ship it anywhere in the U.S. If you're outside of the U.S., uh, we'll figure something out on that one. <laughs> we'll figure out a way. If you're in Europe, presumably you have a much easier time of getting this than we do. So that maybe this isn't quite so special. But if you're in the U.S., we will ship it to you. Absolutely. Should be fun, Mark. I'm really excited to see what the listeners come up with because it'll be fun to see what our new little guy will be named. We'll <laughs> have to figure it out. I know. 
we're gonna we're gonna be stuck with it. So I hope please give us something good, something we can live with. Right. Because our creativity had it become the aristocrat or the mogul guy or the little uh, monopoly guy. We we have no creativity here. I'm also saving you all the trouble. Any entries named Gamey McGamer face will be thrown out. Mogul McMogul face is probably what it's going to be then. There it is. <laughs> any 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 something McSomething face is probably not going to be seriously considered. And just to hit that URL one more time, it's our website just with the backslash contest. Yep. GamingMoguls.com slash contest. So. We have been taking a bit of a side trip over the last couple episodes to talk about all of our favorite games. And one of the things we haven't done as much of as part of that is talking about the games we've played this week. So I don't know about you, Jake, but I got kind of a backlog of games to talk about. Weirdly enough, I don't. It's been a I've had a good job of talking about the games that I've really liked in the last episode. I've kind of been playing like the same five games. I do have new games to talk about, but not as much as you. So why don't we start off with one of yours that I've spoken about? that you have recently played for the first time, I believe. I've got a few other ones that I'm sort of purposely holding off on until you have a chance to actually play them. Right. So first up, I'm going to talk about an imported game from Japan. I'm talking about Let's Make a Bus Route by Sashi and Sashi. This is a game that uh, I made a point of trying to import courtesy of White Rabbit back during the summertime. And uh, once it finally arrived on my doorstep, it went into the closet and there it sat. And there it sat as I watched a number of times of you playing it at the next table, telling me about how much fun it was. So, right. Which is funny because it was the times I've played it have been kind of filler times where I think you could have fit in. I'm trying to see how many times I've actually played it this year because it's been a decent amount. I think I've played it four or five times. Six. I've played it six times, Mark. So in the past like two months. I've had six opportunities, and regrettably, you've never sat down for one of them. That's a bummer. Yeah, that is a shame. I, I just think I was always playing something at those times, so it just never worked out. So a little bit of background. What is what is Let's Make a Bus Route? I suppose at a super high level, it's a flip and right, but it's a little different than a lot of flip and rights in that you are directly interacting on the same map. What you're trying to do is you're trying to complete the best bus route where you go around and pick up people and deliver them where they want to go. And depending on how you draw those lines, you earn different revenue from that or you get different points. And the one with the most points at the end of it wins. You basically flip your way once through the little deck. The deck gives you the patterns on what paths you can draw. And once the deck is gone, so is the game. Man, this was really fun. Right. I mean, it's one of those games that is definitely the most interactive flipping right, but still is not that mean. It's still puzzly and not solvable, but you're definitely trying to optimize your path with the odds of the different routes coming up. What did your family think of it? So what happened was we were on a Saturday afternoon. My wife was out and it was myself and uh, William and Elizabeth. So we pulled it out and played it. I just said, kids, we're playing this. And we all sat down and my daughter's very artistic, so anything that involves a dry erase marker, she's automatically on board for. So we ran through it, and I don't think we were more than a turn through it when both kids said, oh, mom's going to love this game. We got to play this one with mom. So <laughs> by the time the game was done, mom had arrived home, and they instantly basically walked up and said, mom, drop what you're doing. Come down. You're playing this. So that's awesome. We rolled her back, fired it up, and played it again. And after, you know, the, her <laughs> quick response was, oh, that's a fun one. Oh, it's really fun. And man, super quick teach. Plays in about, I don't know, 30 minutes and just lots of great decision, great interactivity. And this is something I think will get played an awful lot. Yeah. So I think in the past couple of weeks, kind of both come to the realization that we don't need as much roll and write games and flip and write games that we had acquired in 2019 and 2018. And I have sold a bunch of them. I sold Welcome to, I sold Railway Inc., at least my second copy of it. 
And this is definitely going to be one of the games that's going to stay for a long time. I think Let's Make a Bus Route is very unique, very different than other ones. It really could be a board game more than a roll and write. Compare that to like other roll and write games. And it's just, it's really fun. I, I totally get why people really like it. And it's, it's always going to have a place on my shelf. Yeah. And it's not that big of a box too. It's a, it, it's an odd size box, right? It's kind of like larger XY than most other boxes, yeah, but it's, it's really skinny. Right. It's the Irish gauge sized box, the kind of tall skinny yeah. guy that's wide as well, which I love because you can fit so much more of them on your shelf than other boxes. Well, and across the United States sort of is the same size box as well. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a wonderful game. I'm happy you guys like it because I hope it can kind of be brought back to the table. It's such a fun, fast filler. Um, did you I probably shouldn't make this joke, but what did you call the little uh, guys who go to the university? I don't know. I don't know that we did call. I, did you just call them students? Scholars, maybe. Did you call them students? We called them leather daddies because they look like leather daddies. Oh, <laughs> and so did John noticed that John, Mark and I at the end of Mogul's Con one of the night were playing this game and we were just hooting and hollering because it was like one in the morning and we were talking about how we were picking up our leather daddies and bringing them to Mordor. Because <laughs> the uh, the school ends up looking like Mordor. Yeah, they they usually they have very good uh, graphic design language, but this one got a little confused for John, I guess, because he kept on calling them policemen, and they looked like village people policemen. So, <laughs> no, I I did not notice that, but now I have to go back and check it out. A hundred percent. That is, let's make a bus route by Sashi and Sashi. What would you give it on the mogul scale, there, Mark? Um, I have down here a two B. Now that we're talking about this, this one might be a one B, don't you think? I think this is a bigger conversation for another episode, but I think we're going to rescale a lot of the games. And I think this is a 2B. I think it has enough game in it where it's going to trip up some newer players and they're going to not 100% know how to play the game from the teach strategy wise, mm-hmm. but not all the way. So I feel like it's a 2B. I feel like 2B is kind of a good home for it. Yeah. And not to spoil our lead on this one, we've been living with the mogul scale now year here for, oh, I don't know, 10 months, something like that. And have started to realize that we're sort of afraid of both ends, like the ones and the fives. And we've, we're giving a lot of things twos and threes, and we're especially scared of fives. So I think we're going to sort of readjust, bump some of the threes to fours, and we're going to bump some of the twos to threes to kind of give those areas a little more granularity. Wonderful, Mark. Well, let's kind of go to a different game that is also in a very small box, but very much heavy on the other end of the weight scale. This weekend, I was at PAX Unplugged, which was absolutely so much fun um, to, to, to get together with some people and play some games. And one of the games that we were able to try there was PAX Transhumanity, which is a new release by Matt Eklund and Sierra Madre Games and Ion Game Design. We played this at the first look area in PAX Unplugged, which is an area which had a whole bunch of games set up and you can come up and they had looking for players, looking for teacher signs. And so one of the friends of the show, Ashley, who was also at the convention, and I decided that we should just go try to figure it out. About an hour of reading the rules aloud to each other, trying to digest this game, we were able to squeak through a game. Don't quite know after that first play if I really understood everything, and now after the second play, I still don't think I understand anything. But last night at our Wednesday night game night, we ended up uh, playing it, and I taught it to you and Nick Mark. What did you think of Pax Transhumanity? This was a game I was super excited about playing since I ordered it, and I remember placing a Kickstarter order for that one. And you just went, what are you doing? <laughs> Nobody's going to play that with you. Like you're, you're buying that, you're buying Pax Perferiana and you're buying Bios Origins. Who's going to play those with you? Well, and this was right during the time. Wasn't this the feudum time in our life too? 
Yeah, right probably when you, somewhere right when there, you sure. had feudum and you and we played it and I was like, oh, no, Mark's going off the deep end. And you kept <laughs> on bringing me to play feudum. And I can't remember. There's a couple other games around that time. Where I was just like, oh, that was probably the Lisboa age, too. That was somewhere right. in there where I, yeah. Jake had this idea where I was like, I don't want to deal with all these types of games. <laughs> so smash cut to PAX Premier showing up this summer and Jake all of a sudden says, what? <laughs> this, right. this PAX thing is kind of cool. And why is it that I didn't kickstart those uh, pack those other PAX games, Mark? If you want to sell those to me before they even arrive, I'm in. <laughs> right, and you should have because I had to go buy my own used copy, or not a used copy, it was still on shrinking, but on BGG and probably paid way too much for it compared to what you paid for it. Yeah, the, actually, the, the Kickstarter wasn't very expensive for those three games together. Well, I mean, they, they seem to be pay, priced based on like how big the box is. I think the PAX Transhumanity box is four inches by four inches by two inches, it, maybe. Yeah, I mean, maybe something along those lines. Maybe five by five by two, but it's a little like it looks like it should be a little light filler weight game that you'd pull out to close out a long evening of gaming. Jake, does that resemble in any way what's actually inside that box? No, not at all. And so <laughs> that might be the understatement of the year. Right. And before we start really explaining this game, let's give it the caveat. We've only played this game twice. I'm sure we're going to play it a whole bunch in the next couple of weeks. But things we say now might not be the most educated because we still haven't played it that much. And I mean, last night or when we played, I didn't even explain to you the tycoon rule. I thought I'd get to a point where somebody had built three or four businesses and I'd tell you, OK, now if somebody gets to five, you can win that way. But we didn't have to do it. So what you're doing in Pax Transhumanity feels weird glorifying this, but you're like big titans of industry who are trying to work to solve humanity's problems. And the way you do this is by there's four different spheres in the game. The first world, the developing world. Then we also have space and the cloud, which are two random future things that I think I guess will matter in Mac Eklund's mind. And what you're doing is you're buying these different cards, researching things to try to advance humanity and solve these problems but functionally what it actually is is just a set collection game where you are in control of what sets will actually score with very complicated subsystems on how to actually do each action yeah i think that is a adequate assessment of what it's trying to do it carries over sort of the central conceit of the pax games where it's really that market right i mean that's the central thing that all of the pax games share is it that's what I've always been led to believe. It's that that market that, you know, where you've got the cards out that you're tableau building and the cards, there's a way to make the cards cheaper and there's a cost to each of the cards. And then you do the things with those cards. They're kind of multi-use after that. I believe that's the core conceit. Again, my PAX history, I've played PAX Premier a few times. I've played PAX Transhumanity one time. So PAX fans, Sorry. Dumb boys. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> At ease. But that's my understanding of it. And it absolutely has that in common with Pax Pamir. I think that's where the similarities end. Right. And that was my kind of confusion here, because I came from playing Pax Pamir a bunch this summer. We played it a lot around MogulsCon time. I've been playing with Tyler a bunch in two-player games. And I kind of expected that to carry over to Transhumanity. And in Transhumanity, it's different. It's not really a war. I kind of thought that these different zones would be vying for dominance. And I guess each one of the spheres can be dominant depending on the regime change of the cards, but it doesn't really end up being as wary than P Pax Pamir. I ended up playing Pax at Pax. I played Pax both Transhumanity and Pamir at Pax Unplugged. There's so many Paxes going on right now. Yeah. So who's the publisher of Pax Unplugged? 
Oh gosh, I don't I, think I have that one. My, my brain is breaking. <laughs> but we we ended up playing Pamir with uh, some some newer players, and they didn't like it because it felt a little too mean. I don't think they would level that complaint towards Pax Transhumanity. I don't know. I think with certain cards, you can affect each other's positions, but to me, it doesn't seem like there is as much moving around and hurting other people's position as there is in Pamir, at least in a direct way. I'm sure it's indirect ways, but it seems kind of more hands off than the other ones. Yeah, I think the one place that that probably is the most apparent is in the win condition. So the way that the win condition works is that there's a specific thing that's dominant at that point or whatever, a specific era, sphere that it's a regime because it's kind of tied to Thank spheres. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. When that thing changes depends on what cards are tucked underneath the uh, human development. <laughs> There's so many buzzwords in this game. I can't remember what it's called. But if you have a certain number of things that are the same, then you flip it to a different regime. And if they're different, you flip it to a different regime. So what can happen is a case where, okay, I've, I've just about won. I've got the most scoring points with the current regime. I just need to get this one card called the tipping point to end the game. And bam, I did it. And then somebody goes out and <laughs> syndicate or somebody is it uh, somebody syndicates a particular card that's out there, adding it to the stack, which then changes the regime. And now suddenly I went from having six points to having zero because a different regime is in place. Right. And then with your thing that you're going to commercialize the tipping point card, it may not actually revert it. And that is interactive. But to me, that feels different than in Pamir, where the British are taking over Punjab. You know, like that's completely different sure, feeling. Sure. And I think that that could rub some people the wrong way. I know when we played with my cousin this weekend, that was his main complaint where he was the only person who was allied. It was a weird game state, which I'm not going to go to too much, but he was the only person allied with a certain um, coalition and the coalition just couldn't go. Everyone was at a stalemate and we ended up not scoring anything. And the only times we actually scored anything was non-successful dominance checks. So all the armies and roads stayed out there. So I think this one just isn't as on the nose with the interaction in that way. And so I actually am pretty excited because I think Trip Packs Transhumanity will be one that might get a little bit more love from people who didn't like Pamir as much. You know, another parallel that I would draw to Pamir that I hadn't really put together before, again, it, it, you're having enough trouble just trying to keep up with what's going on in your first playthrough of this one because it's 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 opaque, it's Baroque. Any game that's over four on Board Game Geek, and this is rated at 4.4, takes a few plays to really even kind of understand how the machine moves. But what I would say is one other common note between the two of them is that you have a faction allegiance, right? In Pax Premier, you're allying with the Afghans or the British or something like that. It's just that in Pax Premier, it's public and everybody knows that you want the British to be good. In Pax Transhumanity, you've got a secret allegiance, essentially, with one of those spheres of, you know, whether it's cloud or developing worlds or whatever else. And you definitely want that thing to be better because that's where you score your most points. Right. But there's no way to betray your hidden sphere, which is, I think, the big yes, difference between right. what I found in Pax Transhumanity to Pax Pamir. That being said, I think we should probably cut our Pax Transhumanity conversation a little short because I think I'm going to get a few more plays of this in the wintertime. And hopefully you'll be with me with all those and we can maybe speak a little bit more intelligently on this. At least as it stands now, I'm unsure if I'm going to like it or I'm going to love it. That's that's at least kind of where I see my projection going. I'm either going to think this yeah. thing's up there with Pamir, or I'm going to be like, that was good, less good than Pamir, still definitely a 7 out of 10. Yeah, I'm cer I certainly love the theme. I mean, I, I've always had a little bit of an eyeball on the shiny blinky things, and this is a whole game about developing shiny blinky things. So <laughs> just the theme itself, I think, is really interesting. 
And I am definitely down to learn how to play this one better because, I, again, I feel like I just know a few words in this strange language and I can't actually converse with anybody yet. Yes, hopefully we will get to this to the table much more in the future because it's not a very long game. How long do you think our play actually took? You know, the actual play of it, I think, was less than an hour. Right. And so I think this is going to be one of the games, too, that'll be strong at two and very strong at mm -hmm. very strong at two. So it might be one where me and you kind of maybe slink away. And if everybody else is running something else, maybe if it's a seven person game night and five people are in a, let them be in a five player game and you go play Pax Trans Humanity a couple of times and uh, really, <laughs> really deep dive on it. The mogul scale on this would definitely be a 4D, at least as of now. Maybe some of that will fade away, but 4D seems to be a good place for it. Yep, I think that's a good rating for it. Wonderful. Mark, let's talk about your number two game that I still have not played. Sure. This is a game that was the 2010 Spiel des Jahres Game of the Year Plus. I don't know what that means. Is it an honorable <laughs> mention? <laughs> I don't think it was the 2010 Spiel des Jahres, and this is a category I've never heard of. But anyway, that's somebody in Germany thought it was a pretty darn good game at one point. This is A World Without End by Michael Reinick and Steven Stadler, published by Mayfair Games in 2010. This is a game based on the Ken Follett Pillars of the Earth series of games, the second book in this one. And there's, a, there's actually a game for each one of the three books. There's a Pillars of the Earth, there's World Without End, and there's Column of Fire. I own Pillars of the Earth and have not played it yet. I own World Without End. I don't own Column of Fire yet, but they're all actually different games. They're not sequels or expansions. They're completely different games. In World Without End, you are doing the events in Kingsbridge in the 1300s, and anybody that was alive in that time was well familiar with the fact that life was nasty, brutish, and often short, and a lot of corruption, and the church had a very hard, hard hand on everything that was going on there. So what you're doing in the game is trying to just keep everybody happy, like you have to show enough allegiance to the king and you have to show enough piety to avoid being burned at the stake. And oh, by the way, you have to try to cure people of the plague whenever you can. Well, meanwhile, trying to build up some of the major landmarks around Kingsbridge. At the core of the game, you score your most victory points by building buildings. So you get stone from the quarry or wood and you contribute those towards the buildings that are getting, getting built. And every bit of stone you contribute earned nets you three victory points. The other major way of scoring points is by curing households with the plague, which you can do by gaining medicine knowledge throughout the course of the game, which you don't actually spend. It's just sort of a level thing. But you can't actually do what actions you want to do every turn. What you have is you have 12 cards every round, and every round, there are four rounds in the game, every round you get to play out six of your cards. Every round you play a card, and you discard a card. So maybe I want to go get some stone. I'll play the get stone card. And this turn, I don't want to maybe going to do anything with cloth. So I'll discard the get cloth card. The next turn, I'll play the build card, which allows me to put the stone and wood towards one of the buildings. And maybe I'll discard the card that uh, just gets me some piety because I have a lot of piety left over. The problem is, is that every turn, there's an event card that pops up. And that event card will say something probably rather earth shaking and rather miserable for everybody in the game. Like one of the event cards is randomly discard cards up to six and just play what you have left. Oops. Well, wait a minute. Now suddenly I have a lot less selection on actions that I can take this round or every round your discards are random or every card like for the rest of this round, the cloth market only pays out one instead of four. So they all affect everybody equally. So it's a miserable experience that you all share and laugh about because everybody's getting hosed. Now, if you happen to discard the wrong cards, it might hose you worse. That's really thematic and really fun. The other sort of neat thing about this game is that that event card that you get has a north, south, east, and west, and you orient that card on the board to point at one of the players, and they get the income that's in the corner of that. So maybe one of the corners has a stone on it. Another one has a victory point. Another one has a piety. 
And so you pick what thing you want, but then everybody else at the table gets one of those other things. So it's sort of a cross between, I I want that, but I don't want that other guy to get that thing. Hmm, maybe I'll take this B plus thing so that nobody else gets what they need either. There's also an arrow that points to a rotating event thing that happens when you orient the, uh, there's like an award or a little, I don't know, I forget what they call it. But when you orient the income that you get, then that also points to the move that thing two spaces. And that two spaces is usually good, but it might be the robbers where you have to pay in. Anyway, lots of interesting decisions in this one. At the end of every round, this could be an Uwe Rosenberg game because you have to make people happy at the end of the game. You have to prove you have at least two piety. You have to prove you have enough food to survive for the next era, and you have to also pay taxes to the king. If you don't have any of those things, very severe penalties happen the next turn, like you have to play one less turn, or you have to to randomly discard a card, or there's a bunch of really nasty penalties. Oh, fun game, Jake. I wish you could have played it with us. Yeah, I would have liked to, too. We had a lot of people at our game night last night, and regrettably... I just think that things laid out in a way where I couldn't play with you. But I had a good play bus, which is a good game. But with A World Without End, it sounds like one of those games that I'd really like because I like when everybody is being just dragged down and brought into pain because of a game. I like a lot of misery games. And this definitely seems at my wheelhouse. It should be fun. How long was your play with it, with Teach and everything? You know, with Teach, it was sub two hours. I think if you knew the game, you could knock it out in 90 minutes, no problem. Gotcha. Um, And then what would you put it as a mogul scale? This square right in the middle of 3C. <laughs> it's a midway euro up one side and down the other. It's funny. This is a game that came out in 2010, and it's getting zero buzz right now, right? You, nobody talks about this game. So I pulled it out of the box, and I kind of got a whole bunch of side eye from everybody like, mm, what's this game? Do I really want to play this? No, no, trust me. This is great. This is great. And like literally one round in, our local savant, Steven, was like, oh, I like this game a lot. This is great. That's <laughs> awesome. Just laughing. Awesome. It's in my uh, December bag, so we'll have more opportunities. Moving forward to my number two uh, small box game that I played this week. I'm speaking of Mask Men by Jun Sasaki and Oink Games. Finally got to get this one back to the table. It would not be in Mogul's episode without referring to Oinks at least once. At least. And so this is one of the games we I we own so many Oink games. We have like all of them. And there's a handful of them that we kind of alluded to in our Oink episode about not playing too often. And Mask Men was one of them. I remember liking it. I remember playing it. I remember saying, this is really fun. This is such a cool Oink game. And then we just kind of never touched it again. And I'll get back to, I think, why in just a bit. So this past Wednesday, I break it out when our game of bus ended and we had to play something quick while you guys were wrapping up World Without End so we can kind of cross-combobulate and cross-pollinate there. And I reached in the bag and brought up Maskman. I've been hearing some people online who I really respect say that they like the game and I should give it another try. So I did, and it was really fun with one caveat. Before I get into the caveat, let's explain what you're doing in the game. You are different wrestling promoters in the luchador scene in Mexico. And how you do this is it is a hand management game where you are trying to play all of your wrestlers that you have. Every wrestler falls into one of six suits and all of the cards are the exact same. There's no special abilities on all the cards. They are just one of the six colors functionally, each one representing a different mask in the luchador scene. So what you're doing on your turn is you are playing a card. If there has been determined ranks, which is done by these little masks that you arrange in a kind of grid pattern or not a grid a a line a totem pole of masks if one of the other masks that you're holding is bigger or higher or above the mask lower than it that is just currently played you can play that down or you can trump it if there has been no relationship determined between person that you're trumping with and the different wrestler that's already out there 
if Mark plays a yellow, I could play two blues, which then means that the blues are above the yellow. So you take out a little mask, put it above the yellow. And fundamentally, that means that, hey, those two wrestlers had a fight and we know blue beats yellow. Always. Yes, exactly. And blue will always beat yellow. Right. And and you can do that up to three times. So you can make a three level thing. So if Mark plays one yellow and then I play two blues and then Tyler plays three greens, we have a three line that we know the ranking of those suits. We know that blue is better than yellow and green is better than green. Here's the issue. You can have multiple like different runs, but they are all relative to each other. And this was the issue that we had in the game. So, for example, in that same exact example where green is better than blue and blue is better than yellow. Let's say in a different line, you had like gray is better than yellow or better than blue. Pardon me. That, that'll make sense. So now when Mark plays a yellow card, I can play a gray or a green or a blue, even though technically that gray has no direct relation to yellow. And we played that wrong when he played it. We thought we had to keep on making lines. And this game was really simple other than that. It just was kind of hard for me to manage how all, each one of the masks worked in each different line. And I resolved it, went on BGG, posted online, and got totally um, am on board with this game now. But for how simple this game really could be, it kind of got choked up by that. Oh, yeah. It's just trying to determine the ranks. You know, is this, but it, it's really a logic puzzle, right? So, like, say, okay, in our example before, if blue is better than yellow and green is better than blue. Does that automatically make green better than yellow, or do we have to establish who's better between green and yellow? I think it does. It automatically it? extrapolates. That's the one issue. I okay. wasn't extrapolating information from other gotcha. lines onto that. Because really, you could just play with one of each one of the masks in the box. And that's apparently how it came out originally. But ours edition has like four or five of each mask there because you're just making a hierarchy and certain ones are not determined between them. So you can know like the red's the best and the green's the next and the blue, yada, yada. But then orange and yellow are currently we know both of those are better than green, but we don't know which one of those two is better than each other until there's actually a trump to one or another. So it actually becomes very easy of kind of trying to figure out what you're doing with it but it's a fun little game i want to play it more because it's beautifully designed like all oink games are in in presentation wise and i think it actually has a lot of meat on the bones once you determine how all those masks work yeah i think this was a sleeper hit right it didn't get a lot of discussion and it's actually one of the crunchier games with trying to because you can really game out how the establishment of the suit rankings works and i think there's a lot of strategy embedded in that plus Man, any game about luchadors that isn't a uh, fighting game, I'm all in. Right. And it's 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 this game couldn't be more simple once you know how everything works. And the fact that just like keep the logic puzzle and make it real simple. Don't make it don't make it crazy because we got in a position where like we made new lines each time we had a trump. And so they need to previously refer to all of the other lines to figure out whether or not you were able to trump. But we got in a couple of circumstances where A was better than B, B was better than C, C was better than A. So it made this weird thing, which felt really gamey and kind of gross. But now that we actually know <laughs> that it's just way simpler, I got way too in my head with it. And my teach was definitely not the best with this game. I was not super planning on playing it, but we had five. I was actually planning that we played Tricks in the Phantom, but we ended up playing Maskman and it, it, it went over OK. I think some people really liked it at the table. I don't think anybody disliked it. It's just now that I really know how to play, I think it'll be played more often. I think the real game in there is the establishment of the order oh, of the power of the Trumps. I mean, that's gaming that out and making sure that, you know, the cards that you have the most of are the highest ranked wrestlers. That's definitely where the game lies. Exactly. And then being able to Trump all the time and being able to run down a suit and trying to count what everybody has is also part of the game. It's it, it's a fun little game. I I'm, want to circle back to it. And the fact that it is a suited game where there's no numbers on the cards, that's kind of interesting, too. It, it's bone simple once you get into it. 
Uh, for sure. Again, that's uh, Mask Men by June Sasaki and Oink Games, one that's actually commonly available in the U.S. Yeah, and if we're giving that a mogul scale, it's got to be a 2A, I believe. Maybe a 1A. We'll figure that out. Maybe a 2B. A few plays. We, we might adjust that one. We bumped it up a notch just because of the confusion around how do you establish the suits and the rules around that are more Byzantine than they maybe need to be. I just think they needed more examples that were a little bit more verbose in their examples. That was the main issue. Sure. Wonderful. So what's your what's your what's your number three game you've played, Mark, in the past week? So I've been playing an online game of Twilight Struggle on the iPad with our friend Dan. And boy, I'm glad I've been doing this. It's fun. I've never actually played against another human with the online version. I've played person to person in real life with cardboard. And I have also been uh, played the online version against the bot. I've never played against another human. And that's been an interesting experience because when you establish the game, you also establish a game clock. And I didn't realize that at first. And (laughs) like the game all of a sudden ended. And I was like, well, what happened? Well, you ran out of time, you dummy. (laughs) Oh, so. (laughs) Whoops. Oh, got it. Because I, I thought I was saying, well, you got 12 hours per move. No, it's you have 12 hours for the whole game. Oh, geez. So, so that wasn't per move. So now we have it set out to like 21 days, I think, for our game. So we're in the middle of a game. What's happened so far? It's interesting. I got kind of a somewhat unfair opening with the Marshall Plan. So the Marshall Plan allows you to add dump a whole bunch of uh, U.S. influence into Europe right from the get go, which is a, a little bit of an unfair start. So I, I surged ahead to a really early lead. And I've been playing most of the game out at like a, uh, you know, plus eight, plus 10, plus nine sort of zip code as far as points go. Now, just need to survive the rest of the game. Yeah, until last night. (laughs) Yeah, you were were telling me this before the episode. And I'm just cringing every new thing that I hear him say he did to you or you say that he did to you. First thing that happened is he headlined. So what happens in Twilight Struggle is there's a thing called a headline where you basically make an event happen before you start playing cards and the other person just gets to deal with whatever that thing is. And the card he hit me with one is one where all of my cards are worth one point less. Okay, that's that's painful, but I had uh, some decent value cards and I thought, well, we can we can weather through this one. I got a big enough lead. I can afford to lose a few points. The challenge is then he followed it up with Quagmire, which Quagmire is a card that you basically can't do anything else till you break the Quagmire. And you break the Quagmire by playing a two value, discarding a two value card and rolling a dice. So remember, he already had a card in play that made all my cards worth one less. And I had a whole handful of two value cards. So now suddenly none of the cards in my hand can be used to break the Quagmire. The one card I could use, I failed on. And the final card was the China card, which is a big fat four card, which I thought, okay, no problem. I can try this again. So even after playing my three value card and thinking and failing at that, I thought I still have the China card and can break the quagmire with that one. And the app wouldn't let me play it. And after a rules dive, figured out that you have to be able to discard a card. And since the China card never actually gets discarded, it just gets handed to the other player you can't use that card to break the quagmire. So now I have a whole handful of cards that I can't use to break it. And I'm basically just going to be passing for the next five rounds of this turn. Yikes. I can't even imagine someone gutting me like that in this game. That is brutal. Yeah, I'm I'm essentially softlocked. So I, I don't know what he has in his hands, but there could be a case where he, like, he could get dominance in Europe and then score it oh and gosh. just win. I don't think he can do that. I don't think there's enough turns to do that. But, oh, good Lord, not being able to play an entire round is horrible. Well, I'm happy you're getting so many online plays of this because this was always high in contention for online games that me and you should play that are asynchronous that I should have on my phone. 
And then I didn't want to play it on my phone because that's awful and I don't have an iPad. So I kind of passed on this. So I'm happy you're able to find someone to play this with online. That sounds really fun. Yeah, and I've actually, man, I've learned a lot of the game because this game is one that is learning the cards and learning what can be done, what pops up in every era. I so infrequently make it to that final era that it's nice to be able to see the cards come out and learn more what they do. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fun that, and I think online would be the best way to just deep dive into this game and just get repetitions, you know, just get up to 50, 60, 70 plays in a year, you know? Oh, for sure. As soon as this one's wrapped, uh, I'm, you know, going to want to run her back, assuming he's up for it, or if anybody else is too, I'm absolutely going to want to play this again. The one thing I will say that is ultra painful about this, and I just, uh, drives me crazy. Most apps on the iPad, right? When you reopen them, they, they're modal. They pick you back up to where you were before. You're not restarting them. So you would think that, you know, you make your move and you go off and do other things. And then when you come back to it, you should just be able to pop back into the game. Nope. You have to watch the whole intro sequence every single time. You have to watch the play deck logo. You have to watch the little mushroom cloud of it loading. You have to log in. You have to load the game that you were playing. So every turn you make, there's a minute of just twiddling around with stuff where it'd be so nice to just flip to the game make your move and flip out of it again without having to do that yikes that's my same complaint with rr18xx versus board 18 yeah it takes so much time it's just like draining i know it enforces the rules and it could be better and some people say it's better but i like moving the little spreadsheet things around well that's twilight struggle um which surprisingly i don't think we've ever given a mogul skill to yeah this was shocking i didn't bother to rank it because i thought "Ah, it's already there but we've never ranked this before well we may have and just never put it in the spreadsheet too that could totally be a thing that sounds like us we talked about it. I think this is a 3D. The rules are not that terribly difficult, but the strategy is definitely tougher. There's a lot of things you can do every turn, and a big part of the strategy is learning some amount of the uh, 100 cards or something like that to make the right choices. So we're calling this a 3D. Wow, that's awesome. Cool. All right. Well, my last game that I played this week was one that I've actually been playing a handful of times in the past couple of weeks, and I'm unsure of it. And it's strange because the game's not that hard. It is very light, especially light for kind of the stuff that I've been really playing in the last while. This is my most delayed Kickstarter. It was supposed to deliver in April of this year, and I ended up getting it in, I think, November. So just about six months, which seems about normal for Kickstarter. I'm speaking of Fantastic Factories by Joseph Z. Chen and Metafactory Games. I believe it's their only and first game, which is cool. And this game was Kickstarted. I thought it was a neat-looking little game. It looked like it had good art, and it seemed to be a very small publishing company, kind of their first shot of doing it. So I thought it'd be a fun thing to try. Um, it delivered without much fanfare, and it was kind of not something that I would normally kickstart. seems like all the things that I've pre-ordered now are 18xx games. So I played with my wife and have kind of mixed feelings on it. What you are doing is it's like nearly a devoid theme engine builder, where you are going to select some cards... There's also some special ability cards that you can select. And there's the first part of the game where you're going to select a card or use a special ability card. And then after you do that, you're going to roll some worker dice. They're just plain old D6. You're going to be able to do certain things with them, like get more cards, get some of the two different resources in this game, or use some of your cards that you've built. The other thing you can do on your turn, and it's all simultaneous, so the game plays really quickly, is you can build different buildings. And all these buildings come with a wild amount of special abilities, like this one gets you two points for every time you do this, and yada, yada. And certain things will take dice for workers, certain things will give you more workers. And honestly, I think it's a game I could just show you the, like, reference sheet, and you'd know how to play. Like, I taught Kirkin, and I felt like I did such a poor job teaching, because there's just, like, nothing to teach. The game's about as simple as it gets, you know? Like, maybe clarify a little bit of the card, give him a card anatomy, but... 
it feels a lot like a dice version of Race for the Galaxy, but without that extra little flavor that really made Race for the Galaxy an amazing game. Wait, if 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 only there were a dice version of Race for the Galaxy. Which is funny because that's not still a dice version. It's weird. It's, it's <laughs> This is like Race for the Galaxy with dice minus that special sauce. You know, it's like, okay. you know, when you try a meal or something, you're like, this doesn't have enough salt or something. And you just like don't have salt at the table and you just kind of have to suffer through it. That's kind of how I feel about Fantastic Factories. It's not a bad game by any means, but just when you're comparing it to Race for the Galaxy and Roll for the Galaxy, two of some of my favorite games, you're just going to make me want to probably play those games instead of this game. I want to, I'll give it a couple more tries before I fully make up my mind on this, but it's good. It's not great. Sure. I originally thought this was that, uh, you know, factory fun and the sequel factory funner. So there should be a sequel to this one called Fantasticer Factories. Yeah. And and then it can even be more delayed on their Kickstarter. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those games that I think I need to try with a lighter group. And maybe I think it's a more reflection of where I'm at with games versus this game's merits itself. I just am finding such a hard time to like really be passionate about lighter games. And this game is about as light as they come. It has a pretty wide decision space, which is okay. It just, it, it just, I don't know. It's missing that je ne sais quoi. I don't know. Hopefully we can get you to play it sometime because it, McKirk and I played it full setup and teach and tear down in like 35, 45 minutes. So you raise an interesting question there. As of late, Kirk has taken a uh, outsized liking for light games. Like, I think he's rebelling against us. What do you think of this? I don't think he loved it. I actually think he'd agree with me. I don't think he's played Race for the Galaxy. He's definitely played Roll. It's just, I don't know what it is about this game. If the cards aren't interesting enough, if there's like not a way for you to cycle them enough, or if there's just not one more mechanism in there to make it a little bit more. It's just, it. I think it kind of fell flat. We also didn't talk about it because we had played and showed up at the game night a little early, like 45 minutes early. And we had pulled this bad boy out after chatting for a bit and then everybody started showing up. So we didn't like really have the time that we normally have after games to like decompress about them and have the whole, well, what'd you think of this? I think he said it was good. I don't think he had anything to say about it, but that would be a good way to see kind of where this game is at. Because that this is definitely something that I think would be in his wingspan wheelhouse. It's a lighter than wingspan game. Relative to point salad? Uh, much heavier than point salad. <laughs> I will say that. <laughs> definitely more game here than that. But yeah, it's just, I, I, I don't know what it was. It's, it's just something that I, it's good, not great. Like, don't love maybe even might be downgraded to ma. I don't know. It's interesting. I hope I can get this played more and just kind of really solidify my feelings on it. Hmm. Yeah, that's too bad. I mean, just I, I saw the box sitting there and, you know, it looks nifty from the box. It actually is sort of reminiscent of like town center was the vibe I got just by looking at the box. It has amazing production value, too. I mean, the all the stuff has that UV coat on it, which is always fun. It catches the lights well. And it's the little card arts charming and the gameplay gets out of the way quickly like i feel like people know what they're doing pretty quickly which is always helpful in a simultaneous game because you don't have to handhold them and if simultaneous play games don't actually run simultaneously then it's just a way too long of a gaming experience if everybody's taking right. turns <laughs> but it's just there's no real way to interact with anybody aside from market there's a couple of cards that'll give somebody a card but there's no negative interactions and in all in it and I don't know. I think it's one of the games that'll probably sell locally to someone. I know Steven said he liked it. So if you were to get it and play with some lighter people, then I'm happy it's still in the game group and I don't need to own it and saves a little spot on my shelf. So sure. that is Fantastic Factories um, by Metafactory Game. And I would give it a 2B on the mogul scale. It's funny that we should kind of end our conversation right there with a talk about lighter games, because honestly, we're coming into what could almost be named lighter game holiday gaming season. Yes, the Christmas. You you got awkward times with people. 
You don't know what to do. You can't <laughs> fill the room with that much small talk. You know, you got eight or Let's ten. Play pe- a game. You got eight or ten people sitting around with coffee, rehashing old stories, and you suggest a game, and everybody looks at you and said, "Oh, I don't know, Bob. That sounds kind of hard." You were doing a great Upper Midwest accent. I'm very <laughs> proud of you. That was that was totally on season. That was flashback to my Christmas. <laughs> So what do you do? You know, it's we're going to actually transition into our main topic, which may not take the main of the time, but what the heck? It's holiday season and holiday gaming can be fun. It can be not fun. Every family has their tradition of games they play too much of. We're going to talk about what holiday gaming looks like for your average everyday neighborhood gaming mogul. Yes. And the average neighborhood gaming moguls being very specific to me. And you. <laughs> In other words, what, what games do we think we're going to play over the holiday season? Because right. honestly, we, we were originally going to try to recommend games to play that didn't suck over the holiday season. And then we realized everybody else does that. They do that. BG, and BGG does that already. Yeah. yeah. Why, why are we doing it? And I think it's fun because I don't think we've ever actually talked about this on the episode. We always play not at our house, right? I mean, we do play at our house, but the ratio of playing outside of our house to in our house is very big for me, probably less so for you with your family. So we have gotten really good at packing bags and we usually have reasons we bring games places. So talking about games that we're playing and why is kind of fun because it's almost like a packing thing. It's some part of our hobby that we don't talk about much. Maybe a future future episode there, Mark. We've sort of taken on this idea that we're going to curate a bag of games for the month that we could keep replaying those. And that's sort of become an interesting concept in of itself because we kind of had some packing fails on Wednesday. But we'll talk about that after that's developed a little more. But the nice part about playing over the holidays is maybe you're home. Maybe you've traveled someplace and you got to bring some stuff with you. Jake, is most of your holiday gaming going to be, I'm assuming you're not going to be hosting a lot of holiday gaming at your place. I'm hosting nothing. The closest (laughs) thing that's actually holiday for me is my in-laws are having a Christmas. We're doing it the weekend before Christmas, actually. So that, but I think we're actually spending the night at their house, which is silly because they're like 30 minutes away from our house. We could just sleep in our own house. But I will definitely be packing a game bag for that. And then the other part of Christmas is down in Iowa. So I will be packing a game bag for that as well. Um, I am 100% away from my shelf of games when it comes to gaming. Are you guys hosting Christmas this year? We are not. We typically go to my sister's for Christmas and she likes to game. I don't know. I think actually she's, I've gotten a little stink eye from her the last couple of holidays that maybe we should game a little more. <laughs> like I well, actually want awesome. That's great. Yeah. So I'm actually going to upscale a little bit. And generically speaking, I'm including holidays air quotes as the, uh, the week between Christmas and New Year's, because a lot of times my kids are home from school. Heather kind of makes a point of taking some time off during there. And we do a lot of family stuff during that time. And a lot of the family stuff ends up being gaming. So we've got some gaming traditions that take place in that kind of swing week between Christmas and New Year's. So that being said, Mark, why don't you start with some of your holiday games that you're thinking you're going to be playing this holiday season? Sure. So a uh, little bit of background for our listeners. My particular family mix is that the the four Teskies that live with me, my two kids and my wife, we play like just about everything in my closet. So short of the heaviest, gnarliest things, uh, just about everything is in bounds for my immediate family. But once we get the extended family out there, it gets a little bit harder to pick games because like I don't not many people in my extended family are going to sit for a four hour euro. But if I got something that smells like a card game or something that can be taught in a few minutes and takes about an hour, I can almost always talk people into that. So we're kind of looking at mogul scale 2B type things, right? A game that's always been popular at many of our family gatherings is Sushi Go Party. 
somewhat controversial among our listeners. I actually think it's a better game than Seven Wonders personally. Like, I think it's the same game with way easier rules teach that you get the same bang for and is way simpler. So it ends up getting played quite a bit. Most people in my family know how to play it and uh, good fun is had by all. So one game that we'll almost certainly play over this holiday break is Sushi Go Party. And by the way, I don't know why we bother with the party version. We almost always play with these stock cards that were in the original Sushi Go release. So so. you just want to waste 15 extra minutes setting up that game. So that's actually a funny thing you brought it up because I have a copy of Sushi Go Party. I have played once and I don't think I'll ever play again. And it's stupid for me to have because I also have a copy of just regular Sushi Go. And that just takes taking the cards out and shuffling them and playing. And I should probably just get rid of my copy of Sushi Go Party. I was so excited when it came out because I thought it'd be something that'd be like more replayable. But how much replayability do you really need on a game of this lightness? You know, like that's not really its selling feature. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I still like the two of them together. I'll just just buy Sushi Go Party because you get, you know, the original one in there, too. I do sometimes like to change it up and we tend to play it fairly often. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, most of the time we are playing the base setup, especially with new players. But when it's people that have all played before, we'll definitely play a weirder setup. Well, then it just comes with the teardown because you have to filter out all the carts, you know, versus the Sushi Go. If only I had a way to make woodcut inserts for my Sushi Go tin, which I have done. Only good for you. Yes. Yes, folks. I have a custom wood insert for my Sushi Go tin. (laughs) Making making a drafting game as expensive as can be. (laughs) (laughs) so that's sushi go party jake what's first on your list Uh, mine's a weird pick we went to pax unplugged this weekend with my cousin his wife and my other and my other cousin his brother and we walked by the gale force nine booth because we were at a con and that's what you do you kind of see all the booths see what's out there and he's like oh my god this dune looks so great i love the dune series which i didn't know he had read them and i'm currently reading them and i was like me too this is great But Ryan, you should certainly not buy this game because it does not play well at two players, which you mainly play games at. And I already bought a copy that I shouldn't have bought because it was stupid because I really like Dune and I just wanted it because it's pretty. It's a pretty thing to look at. But I have a higher chance of getting this game played in real life than he does. And he said, "Okay, well, I'm not going to buy it, but you need to bring it to Christmas. So we have a scheduled game of Dune at Christmas, which I am very much looking forward to. I don't really know how much I'm going to like the game. I don't, I don't, not really coming in with a lot of expectation to like it, but I'm excited for the experience. I'm excited to see how cool and thematic and dooney the game can be. You can enjoy it while enjoying the spice, the spice spice melange. Yes, it will flow. (laughs) I'm excited to be who I'm going to be. I I, I wonder if I'm going to be sad if I'm not the Atreides. Yeah, I I don't know. And this coming out with the, the new, the new movie that's apparently supposed to come out in a couple of years. It's fun. Dune's in the air. You know, we got spice melange. So that, that is Dune, <laughs> one of my only games that I have scheduled for Christmas. What about you, Mark? What's your next one you think you can play over the holidays here? My next choice is a game that really fit right in with my family, and I can even get my father to play. My father pretty much only wants to play cribbage, but I taught him how to play this last Christmas and liked it quite a bit, and now a number of my family plays it, and it's my kid's favorite game. I'm talking about Teach You. The world's best trick-taking game. Hard stop. Hard stop, yeah. Which isn't a trick-taking game, but we're not arguing that. (laughs) Tichu is kind of the the perfect holiday game for a lot of families, right? Because if you're that family that gets together and plays hearts or any other sort of game like that, like Tichu can fit right in that. And it's a better game. Couldn't recommend this more. And I am positive we'll play a whole bunch of Tichu over the holiday break. But, you know, this is a game we've talked a lot about. So I don't know that I need to belabor that point. Awesome. Yeah, Tichu. I'm, I'm bringing Tichu as well. This is one that's in you, like made its way around your family too, right? Yeah, the issue is I didn't teach it that well to the periphery of my family, like my grandparents and stuff. 
we have enough players that know to play and know to play well that I'm definitely going to bring it. But I need to spread the good word that is teach you again now that I actually know everything and just say, hey, I'm going to teach this game for 15 minutes to 20 minutes. And I'm going to explain all these scenarios and we're going to set up hands, have it be fully open, and we're going to teach how to play. And then we're going to start playing. So I'm going to do that this Christmas, too. I probably should have put it on my list, but I saw you had put it, so I didn't have to. Yeah, exactly. And again, I think that, like I said, we did the teach last time and talked a lot about the strategy. So I think this year I can hopefully just get away with just a refresher teach, I hope. Right. This is what the dog does. This is what the dragon. Let's play. Cool. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Well, speaking of old classic games, I am thinking I'm going to bring my crokinole board down to Christmas in Iowa, and I'll definitely bring it to the Christmas over at my in-laws. Crokinole, we've spoke about a bunch. You're flicking little discs. But what was cool and the only real update I have for Crokinole is I played it at PAX Unplugged. The crokinoleboards.com, I believe, had about 20 or 30 boards there. And people were just playing, pick up games. But they used the little shuffleboard dust, the stuff that makes it go a little faster. Oh, sure. And it made it a completely different game. I didn't think it'd be that different. I don't know if my board's not super well waxed or what, but I think I'm going to buy some of this gliss powder and bring it around um, and cause a whole bunch of damage to everyone's carpets by dumping them out everywhere. But Crokinole (laughs) is so fun for everybody. It's one of those games where when you're playing it, people are watching you. And then someone else who's not playing it but knows how to play is going to teach that other person how to play while you're playing. And it's fun to watch people play. And so in my big family, I'm probably just going to set it up somewhere and hopefully people will just be playing it all weekend. I brought some extra discs anyways, just people lose them. It's going to be played that much. So that is Crokinole, which is my number two game I'm going to play over the holidays. What do we think about the uh, rubber posts? So it was weird. They were way bouncier. I'm kind of wondering if I should get like a nice board and just leave this board up at the cabin or something. But it was a very different game with the fact that everything was moving so much quicker. I couldn't tell if it was the post being way bouncier or just the board being way more bouncy, like way more lubricated (laughs) where everything would slide further. (laughs) So (laughs) it was interesting. I mean, it definitely became more finessey. It's not that Crokinole isn't finessey either way, but it kind of felt a little different, felt a little bit more like air hockey. It was fun. I've certainly made some uh, askance comments about Crokinole and its position in relative to gaming. But one thing I cannot deny is that it's fun. And I may have to admit that I might have added it to my Christmas list this year. Awesome. I would love to have you join the Crokinole revolution. I might be playing Crokinole this Christmas, maybe. Awesome. (laughs) That's great. What's your number three there, Mark? So my number three is actually a little bit of a follow-on to the fact that everybody in my family knows how to play Sushi Go. And because they know how to play Sushi Go, they know how to do set collection. And, hey, what would make set collection better? Well, auctioning off those sets, of course. I have really fallen in love with the game of Ra lately, and that's been my go-to sub one-hour, like, four- or five-person game. We just played it again Wednesday night, and I've got my teach down stone cold on that one, so I can teach that game in less than five minutes, no problem, and that game is so great. Oh, I think the one thing it really will go over well with my family and in kind of a lot of families is that there's a much more limited number of decisions you could make without actually sacrificing strategic depth because of the fact you only have three things that you can bid with. You can't just bid with any random amount of dollars. You have three tiles and those are the bid amounts you can use. So that's it really narrows down your decision. And you have two actions. You start an auction or you lay a tile. That's, that's it. it. So Right. It's not like you're taking that tile in any weird way, unless you have a god tile, which is the one weird thing. But compare that to an other, other auction game that we love, like Modern Art. In Modern Art, you have to select your cards. You have to know what your hand is. You have to say, okay, well, I'm going to bump up this artist's value really high in the first age because I have six of their cards. 
and I can hopefully bump up their value in the end too in the next couple of phases. So it's they're even gonna be worth more. And I feel like that level of strategy just kind of gets lost on players. But I think that you can have 80% of that strategy in raw, maybe 75, whatever. You can have close to that level of strategy in raw and the decision space is so much smaller. Yeah, and 100% less right, confusion. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I need to get a copy of raw because I, it, it definitely will be the auction game in that way, in that space for me. I thought too about modern art and including this one, and but ah, man, the fact that I have a foreign language version of right. it and it's already not the easiest. Then estates, my kids like it, but that one gets kind of mean. Well, it's just as open so, as everything. You're looking at this board; they have eight things they can like auction, right? They have all the extenders, they have the little top hat, they have yep. any one of the six current building spots that are open or building blocks, and then they also have a random draw tile roof. You know, there's so much stuff that you can auction it's it's very daunting to a new player and especially when moves really matter in that game especially early ones you really don't want to shoot somebody in the foot and then it just hurts their kind of gameplay to just say well you want to do this you know it's like well if you're going to tell me what to do just the game by yourself you know yeah and i've already successfully taught ra to a few pretty intro gamers and they've picked it up pretty quickly so i think that's uh, going to be a winner that's Ra by dr reiner kinesia it's the uber play version that i'm playing with awesome so my number three is one that i've actually mentioned in passing and i've realized i never actually deep dived on this game one of my family's favorite games that we play aside from like cribbage and um, we also play a lot of up and down the river which i've heard called different names is nerds which is what i think the gamers call dutch blitz i've seen it for sale at fantasy flight and been told by people that it's the same game but functionally it's speed competitive solitaire so what you do is everybody has their own deck of cards and you have four face up cards in front of you. You have a draw pile of 10 cards with the top card being flipped over. And then you have the rest of the deck. The rest of your deck, you flip three at a time and just like solitaire, you can play them. But the weird thing is everybody shares ace piles. So whenever you place an ace, you place it into the middle and then anybody can move any one of their four cards, whatever one's top. You can do the regular solitaire stacking of black, red, black, red, black, red, vertically splayed down for each one of your four piles in front. Or you can play your top card on your little deck, or you can play each one of those top three that you flipped each time. And we play this for hours and I've grown up with this game. And I think it's one of the main reasons I really like speed games because I love the anger and just downright cutthroatiness that happens in it and it makes me feel away and i love it it's 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 really fun i would really recommend trying nerds if you never have and it's about as cheap as you can get you just need four decks of cards if you're playing with four people or however many people you're playing with everybody needs a deck of cards with a different back and everybody can play it's really fun have you ever played this game mark yeah, I grew up playing nerds. That was one of the, our family's just go-to card games. Now, having said that, I bet I haven't actually played nerds in 20 years, but we used to play that all the time as a kid, and that was one of my favorite games growing up. And my wife and daughter played Dutch Blitz against each other all the time. So it gets played around here a lot. And for whatever reason, they just think daddy's not interested. So I just never get invited to play it. So Weird. So weirdly, yeah, I'm well aware of this game. I just haven't played it in forever. Got it. You should get back into it. Explains why you like speed games like Nine Tiles as much as I do. That's awesome. Sure. Yeah, I've played a lot of nerds. That that connects that's connects the link for me. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. So what would a list be without uh, going off into the weeds a little bit and suggesting something that most people wouldn't look at as a holiday game, but it's become a holiday tradition here at this mogul's house. Every year, sometime between Christmas and New Year's, the fam my family sits down and we play a big game of Caverna. We sit down, you know, on a nice snowy 
December 27th or something like that. Whip out Caverna and play it out. And, oh, that's awesome. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. There's, there's an off chance we'll get both that and a Feast for Odin played. I mean, it's great having kids that I've raised as gamers because now I can play these big games and this year should be no different. So our holiday tradition would be to play a big Uwe Rosenberg game on a snowy day sometime between Christmas and New Year's. That sounds cozy just hearing about it, you know, a nice little warm beverage, a little hot chocolate. Ooh, that sounds wonderful. Yep, that is my heavy pick of my Christmas gaming. And I don't need to say much more about that other than the fact that, you know, it's something we started about three years ago and everybody looks forward to. That's awesome. Sounds very wholesome and wonderful. Um, my big pick that's even just as bad, probably weirder than yours. I have a really big family and we go down to Iowa every year and we usually have about like 46 or 50 people down in Iowa for Christmas and we're Oof. all in one house during the day. It's a big house, thankfully, and we all kind of spread out, have fun and stuff. But we'll be a little smaller this year, but we'll still, I think, be at like 30-ish. And it gets to be a little too much, right? As your oof explained. So sometimes we'll go into like downtown Des Moines or something or go to a coffee shop. And weirdly enough, I'm going to bring Pax Transhumanity because I think Tyler and I will like go dip away and play a little coffee shop game. No, you won't. You, you told me I straight up. And you, no, Tyler doesn't play games at holiday get togethers. He wants to watch. He wants to watch basketball. That's the cabin. There's no basketball. He doesn't mind watching basketball. It's, he, Tyler is very weird. He likes Hallmark movies. And he likes romantic comedies. And so at the cabin, he will play, he will play, he will watch, he's the okay, romantic comedy that. guy. Yeah, no, very weird, right? It's the strangest thing in the world. And I kind of feel bad for outing him, but he loves romantic comedy movies. And all of the people in my cabin will watch romantic comedy movies. And so he'll go watch that with them. So it's Kirk and I left over play games. So, but Tyler at Christmas does not usually get sucked into the TV as he would at other places. So we will hopefully play a whole bunch of PAX Transhumanity. Actually, some of my best gaming has happened at this Christmas. Like one year when we first brought Dominion home, we must have played Dominion 30 times in just like three days, just because we just banged through it a bunch. So I'm weirdly kind of hopeful that there'll just be like a couple of times we'll sneak away and play PAX Humanity. I'm actually teaching it to him this weekend. Huh. Well, I, you know, I guess I chalk that one up as being the most surprised I've been this episode. So, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It I, is. The, it is a weird thing. I thought I was most surprised when I saw Pax Transhumanity on your holiday gaming list, but uh, knowing your situation, I guess I'm less surprised. But uh, what's the over-under on getting Kirk to play Pax Transhumanity? Oh, I'm getting never. He just won't like it. <laughs> I, every time I play this game, I'm like, this is the game you would hate. He hates subsystems, and this game has a subsystems for each action you take that's like a mile long. So I'm, I'm no, no. We have other things that Kirk and I will like together. He walked by on uh, Wednesday night after we played and he went, how's the flowchart game? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's because I showed him the flowchart, which is actually an amazing flowchart. Not the one that came in the box, but the one on PGG. And it makes the gameplay so much easier. But we, now we are rambling, Mark. We should probably cut it off. Oh, that sounds great. Well, hey, this has been episode 32. It's our anniversary episode. And Jake, congratulations on what's been an awesome year. And I'm really looking forward to the year ahead. It's been an amazing run. Yeah. Uh, next year will be even more action packed. It'll be so much fun. Not to spoil it, but I think we have a fun surprise. I think we're going to have special guests next time around. Yes. Very special, but you probably never heard of them. <laughs> Indeed. So anyway, we're the Gaming Moguls. I'm Jake. And I'm Mark. Good night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. 
If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.